Please turn in your Bibles, if you would. Cue up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 43, we're going to read through verse 48. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. Before the service, during this week as I was preparing for the message, I had an illustration come to mind. And I asked a few different people to send us, well, send us a baby picture. And I want the kids in here to see if you can look at this picture and figure out who this person is. And you should be able to tell because more than likely in their childhood picture, they're going to look like one of their own children. They're going to look like one of your friends. So let's see if you guys can figure out some of these pictures. I've got three of them here. And here's, here's the first one. All right, who is that? Kids, anybody have any idea? No, that's not Ellie with short hair in a soccer uniform. All right, who is that? Mr. Mark. Mark, right? Ellie's raising her hand back here. I know who that is. Just pull your hair back. I mean, that is, look at the resemblance there. Okay, all right, here's, here's the next one. All right, who does that look like and who might that be? Kids, any idea? Hmm. Oh, it looks, looks like it's Amy, right? Okay, I mean, her kids look just, just like her. I mean, look at that face, all right? So there's, there's Miss Amy, and all right, here's the last one. I try to have them go in order of hardest. Uh, or easiest to hardest, all right? Now imagine this little fella with more of a spiked up hairstyle. Children, any idea? Hmm. You know what? I'll tell you about this little guy. I was getting ready to do the baptism, sitting there talking to Chris, and he pops into the little baptistry back here and goes, hey guys, what are y'all doing? I was like, go back to your seat. Go, go, go. Any ideas now who this might be? (laughs) One of my favorites here at Harvest. That's this is, well, it's Mr. Carey, but that, it doesn't look just like Rowan, all right? That's Mr. Carey up there. Now, I brought those up for a reason because when you see childhood pictures, uh, kids, maybe you've seen a picture of your parents when they were kids, you see the family resemblance. It becomes very clear. Oh, you look just like so-and-so when they were that age. That family resemblance just comes out. And... Um, and many of it, sometimes it's even more striking than other times. In today's sermon, we will hear Jesus give us a challenge to look like our Father, our Heavenly Father. Matter of fact, the very last verse of this passage of Scripture we're going to read here in a minute is a challenge for us to radically reflect our Heavenly Father. Now, I'll remind you that we are in the middle of a sermon series where we are chronologically walking through the life of Jesus using all four of the Gospels. And right now we are right in the middle of studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Even though there are great crowds of people listening in on Jesus as he teaches, this sermon is a discourse given specifically to Jesus' disciples. This is King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. Kingdom citizens should live lives that are different from the kingdom of the world. Our lives should be set apart, different, distinguishable. I mean, that's what Chris was talking about back here. About prior to this new birth happening in him, he, he basically just wanted to go after everything the world was going after. And, and, and God has opened his eyes to how useless and vain that is. Now, in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 3 through 12 a section known as the Beatitudes, Jesus showed us the traits that distinguish citizens of the kingdom. Then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus spoke on the influence 
that distinguishes citizens of the kingdom. Namely, that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world, and, and that doing good deeds gives glory to our Father who is in heaven. Then in verses 17 through 48, which is where we're at now, Jesus has been showing us the righteousness that distinguishes citizens of the kingdom. He does so by addressing kingdom citizens' relationship to the Old Testament law. First, he showed us that he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law, but that he himself is the fulfillment and the completion of the law. And that those who are his followers are called and empowered to keep the law, to carry out a righteousness, a right living, a law-keeping, as we see in verse 20, that exceeds that of the most religious people of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus has, has helped us see this now after verse 20 by giving us six different contrasts. So he'll say something along the lines of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And these contrasts are, are not that Jesus is setting aside the Old Testament, nor is he saying that there's something different between the Old Testament and the New, tra- New Testament, but he's simply showing us how the Old Testament law has been misused, misinterpreted, misapplied, and how it is to be properly understood and lived out in kingdom citizens. So Jesus, by giving us these contrasts, is actually illuminating a fuller and a deeper meaning of the law, showing us that it must be obeyed from the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the heart, heart transformation. Kingdom citizens, therefore, are only those who have been given new hearts that are enabled and equipped and empowered to obey, as Chris talked about from the baptistry this morning. So with that background, let us read this final portion of chapter 5. So please stand, if you would, in the honor of the reading of God's Word, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. This is God's Word spoken to us. And this is Jesus speaking this last portion of this chapter as he gives us the last of these six contrasts. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as those who were here in the Bible study earlier this morning were reminded, you hold shepherds, those entrusted with your word, you hold them at a very high level of responsibility to feed the sheep. But God, a shepherd doesn't feed the sheep out of his own imagination or ingenuity, but only feeds the sheep so far as he's consistent and, and in line with the word of God. So our prayer this morning is that you would align my words with your word. And that you would align our ears, all of us in here, our our ears with your word. So that it might penetrate our heart and change us. So Father, we pray that you would be honored this morning as we continue to preach the word. Be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, as the Sermon on the Mount has been progressing... 
we've seen the challenging nature of Jesus' ethical statements intensifying. So, so as the Sermon on the Mount has been progressing, these, these ethical statements of Jesus' have been intensifying. Now, the last thing we studied was that kingdom citizens are not to be people who resist evil through retaliatory actions, through avenging themselves, but should be people who give generously instead of getting even. And, and that's pretty hard. But then we come to this text here about having love toward our enemies. And the ethic of Jesus is just further elevated. Augustine once said that many have learned how to turn the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. And that's what Jesus is doing here with this sermon. He, he continues to, to raise the level of the standard of, of behavior of those who claim to be kingdom citizens. But Jesus doesn't stop right there. He then proceeds to take us to the, to the pinnacle of Christian ethics with the very last verse of this text we read today. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I want to take a whole sermon just to deal with that last verse. I think it warrants it. If it's the pinnacle of Christian ethics, the summit if you will, then I want us to rest a bit at the summit and take in the view. And so that's next week. So, so we're going to just focus on that verse next week. We'll go all the way up to that verse today. So today we're going to focus on verses 43 through 47. So let's jump right in. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, each one of these contrasts that Jesus has drawn has been an opportunity to expose some Jewish distortion of God's Old Testament laws. In this case, the distortion is even more evident than the previous ones were. You shall love your neighbor is clearly seen in the Old Testament. It's a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Let me read it for you. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we see that clearly in the Old Testament. But the words, hate your enemy, are nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. Those exact words... A command to hate one's enemy is not found in the Old Testament. This was added by the Jews of Jesus' day. So, so why was this being taught in, Jew, in, in Jesus' day by the Jewish leaders? Well, perhaps the Jews simply believed that an enemy was inferred here from the text. If you love your neighbor, well, then conversely, you hate your enemies, right? I mean, maybe they just thought that's inferred. Love, love neighbors, hate enemies. But I think we also need to look at perhaps some other reasons why this teaching had crept into the Judaism of Jesus' day. First of all, many Jews of Jesus' day had a distorted view of who their neighbor really was. When you read this Leviticus text that we just quoted, you could easily think that, that neighbor is limited to other Jews. My neighbors are just my brothers in Israel. But Jesus clearly shows us that this is not the case. Matter of fact, we have a whole passage in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, where Jesus demonstrates that this is not the case. Remember a lawyer came to Jesus, wanted to put him to the test, asked him how to inherit eternal life. Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will, you will live. And then we read this, that this lawyer who asked the question, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? He asked Jesus that question. 
And, and Jesus doesn't answer and says, well, just your Jewish brothers. That's not how he answers that. How does he answer it? What, what parable, kids, does he tell after that question? You know? The parable of the good Samaritan. Right. Clearly, a neighbor wasn't just another Jew. So the Jews had a distorted view of who their neighbors were. And if, and if, uh, if they had paid attention to the whole law, they would have seen that, that neighbor was more inclusive than just their fellow Jews. Matter of fact, in this same text, in Leviticus 19, if you go down to verse 33, you read this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do, to him, do wrong to him. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Jews had a distorted view of who their neighbor was, which led them, obviously, to a distorted view of who their enemy was. The Jewish leaders had, had made anyone who wasn't an ethnic Jew their enemy. So in Jesus' day, of course, the Gentile dogs, those were enemies. But the Romans were especially labeled as enemies because they were an occupying force. Certainly tax collectors, because they helped the Romans collect the money, they were enemies. And of course those Samaritans, those, those half-breeds, they were enemies. And the Jews in Judea, in southern Israel, even considered the Jews of Galilee to be inferior and to be polluted by Hellenistic culture and oftentimes viewed them as enemies as well. The Jews of Jesus' day had a distorted concept of who their neighbor was by narrowing it and a distorted concept of who their enemy was by widening it. Even if they had understood what an enemy rightly was, God's law still required them to show neighborly love to enemies. Let me take you to a passage in Exodus, Exodus, Exodus chapter 22, I mean 23, verse 4. It says this, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This was God's, what God's law required when it came to dealing with enemies. Matter of fact, it's very interesting. This passage in Exodus chapter 23 is almost identical to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, which speaks about how we are to treat our brother's animal who has gone astray. You see, Exodus 12, verse 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And so we must also mention Proverbs 25, 21, which Paul quotes in Romans 12. It says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So the Jews were not upholding God's law when they said, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Instead, they were violating it. Now, we need to consider one more thing, though. One more thing. What about the imprecatory psalms? How many of you know what an imprecatory psalm is in the Scripture? Uh, an imprecatory psalm is a psalm or a passage of a psalm where um, the person quoting, whether it be the psalmist or whatever, calls down curses or prayers of punishment towards God's enemies. Usually it's King David when he writes these psalms. He'll, it's usually him who is, is doing this. To imprecate is to invoke a curse upon someone. Hence, imprecatory psalms. An example would be the end of Psalm 139. You remember I read that a few weeks ago? The end of Psalm 139, which is usually the psalm we read on Sanctity of Life Sunday, but we skip over the imprecatory part at the end of that psalm. 
where David says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Other examples could be found in Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 10, Psalm 28, 31, 35, 40, 55, 59, 69, which, by the way, was Jesus' favorite psalm to quote, Psalm 69. Psalm 79, Psalm 109, Psalm 137, and Psalm 139. So how are we to understand those psalms and can those be used as justification for hating our enemies? Can we use the imprecatory psalms as justification for acting the way the Jews act in this passage here today? Well, first of all, I don't have time to dig really deep into this this morning. And I'd be very glad to toss this around a bit with you more later on after the service or at some later date. But here's some real quick bullet point thoughts. First, we always have to read the Old Testament in light of the what? The new. We read the Old Testament in light of the new. And there is distinction. There is, there is continuity in the Scriptures, but I hope you see that. But there also is distinction between the Old Covenant and the new. But also, if we read the Old Testament in light of the New, we'll see something. Every time Paul quotes an imprecatory psalm, which David spoke, you know who Paul applies it to? He he attributes it to the words of Christ. In other words, the imprecatory psalms are very messianic. And that the son of David is ultimately the one who has the authority to speak these things about sinners. Also, these psalms were, were more about moral repugnance and not about personal vengeance. They also speak against God's enemies and not against our personal enemies. Uh, Many of these imprecatory psalms also have words of pity towards God's enemies mixed in with them. And we also need to see that this was a... We also have to always consider the genre. This is a literary device in the psalms used to reflect an awareness of God's justice and his intolerance towards sin. Finally, David is the author of almost every one of those imprecatory psalms. And who is David? David was the king of Israel. And to whom does God give the authority to carry out judgment upon evildoers? He gives it to the civil authorities, including David in the Old Testament and our governmental authorities today. So that's just some thoughts that were on my mind when we consider the imprecatory Psalms. There's much more that could be said, but we'll leave it there for now. Needless to say, I do not think the Jews could have rightly cited the imprecatory Psalms as justification for hating one's enemies. Matter of fact, I know they couldn't. Why do I know that? Because Jesus here sets the record straight. Again, exercising divine authority over the Scriptures, Jesus says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's just a shocking ethical standard that Jesus is putting forth here. I mean, love your enemies? I mean, we'd understand it if Jesus had said, well, endure your enemies, or ignore your enemies, or be fair to your enemies, or don't curse your enemies, but love them? Yes, agapate, love your enemies. And God says that when we love them, we look like him. Our Father says when we love our enemies, we look like him. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons. This word, so that, this phrase, so that, 
is not that it's not meaning that we become children of God when we love our enemies, but that we demonstrate that we are sons of God when we love our enemies. Jesus has already told us in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus doesn't tell them that, that God may become their Father as they do good deeds, but that He is their Father. And because He is their Father, they are to do good deeds and glorify Him. That's the whole tenor of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what's happening here. Good deeds is loving one's enemy. Glorifying our Father is being a son and acting like Him. And God gets glory from our good works because God made us His children. Think about that. If we did good deeds like loving our enemies in order to become children of God, who would people glorify? Us. But when people give God glory for good deeds that are happening in us, that says something. It isn't us that's doing it. It's God in us because we've been made children. That's awesome. God gets all the glory when we get this in the right order. So what does this love that Jesus calls us to look like? Well, we are to love our enemies in ways that our Father loves them. When we do that, we look like our Father. So that takes me to our first point this morning. Okay? We look like our Father when we show indiscriminate love to those who hate us. We look like our Father when we show indiscriminate love to those who hate us. Verse 44 again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Evil on the good, I mean on the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust. God shows indiscriminate love upon all mankind. Theologians call this God's common grace. God's common grace. Now, There is a special love that the Father has for His children. A saving love. The very love that God the Father has for the Son. A Trinitarian love that we are folded into and experience as we're united to Christ. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a general love, a common grace given to all mankind. It's the love that Paul speaks of when he's talking to the people of Lystra in Acts chapter 14 verse 16. Paul says this, In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is a common grace that God has poured out on all people, including the afar people of Djibouti. Even though they live in the valley of hell, they're breathing. And that in and of itself is a gift from God. God's common grace is his witness to mankind. It's meant to show people himself and drive them to him and leave men without an excuse. And Paul this time, Paul again, this time to the Athenians says this, Acts chapter 17 verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here's why. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him 
we live and move and have our being. He gives, he loves all mankind. He loves all mankind even though all mankind are born at enmity with him. All mankind are born enemies of God, yet God pours out common grace upon them. So right now on the west coast, there is maybe the sun's rising right now, maybe it's already risen, but as that sun comes up, God is making his, his sun to shine on people, pouring out love on people who do not deserve it. Many of those people, most of those people will wake up and immediately begin to worship created things instead of the creator. Oxygen is flowing in and out of the lungs right now as some of them are perhaps are still asleep even. And with that oxygen and those lungs being filled within just a few hours, many of those people will rise up and use those oxygen-filled lungs to curse the creator who gave them that very oxygen. And God continues to pour out love on enemies. On people who are in willful rebellion against him. Willful rebellion against the creator and God still loves them. So, have we been insulted or ignored or mistreated or even harmed perhaps because of our faith? Oh friends, how the mistreatment that we have received pales in comparison to the rebellion that men have against their creator. And yet God loves and so must his sons. So must his children. So if our father pours out indiscriminate love upon those who hate him, then we, the sons of God, by virtue of our spiritual rebirth, will exhibit his love, a supernatural, divine love toward our enemies. That's the only way this ethic of Jesus is is possible, through God's supernatural work in our hearts. Again, it's all about the heart. You cannot follow Jesus' words here without a new heart. It's impossible. Without his divine work taking place in you. I read one commentator that said this. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. By God's gracious work in our hearts we are shown. uh, We show the family resemblance through indiscriminate love towards those who hate us. And now like our father, there is a special love, friends, that we have for the rest of God's children or our brothers and sisters in Christ. A love that exists by virtue of our oneness in Christ, a bond of peace. And of course, that level of love cannot exist between those with with whom we're not united. So that's not the love I'm talking about here. There is a special love amongst the brothers. I am talking about a general indiscriminate love that we are to have for all of our enemies that in and of itself also must be given to us by God. Now the second thing I want us to notice is that we look like our Father when we show indulgent love to those who hurt us. Indulgent meaning generous. Not only is it in, not in, indiscriminate, not only is it indiscriminate, it's, it's indulgent, it's generous. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. I love that. He make, I mean, Jesus goes out of the way to say he makes... Not just the son, his son to rise. God owns it all. Anything anyone has is simply a gift from the Almighty. This is our Father's world. And he takes his world, his creation, and uses it to bless rebellious sinners. It's absolutely stunning when we think about these things. That air you're breathing, that's not your air. That's God's air. 
That house you think is yours because a bank says it's yours isn't yours. That's God's. Every bit of that material, it's God's. Everything you have, everything that's ever been given to you is his, and he poured it out upon you. He, it's his son, and he makes it to rise. I love that. He makes it to rise. He, he is actively choosing to bless men with his son, his sunshine. He makes it. God is not some distant God who wound up the universe and set it into motion and then sits back and lets it all play out. He is a God who upholds the universe, who makes things happen. He is actively, personally involved in every aspect of every event, not only on our little planet, but the entire universe. Not a comet flies through space and not a tick bites a dog apart from the sovereign hand of God. God makes it to happen. It's much easier for our little brains to to think of God as God that just sort of allows it all to happen. He makes it according to this text. That is a bigger God than our little brains can handle. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He sends it. He like mails it to you. I'm going to send you some rain. He sends it. Hey, rain, go pour down on Decula, Georgia, and it obeys him. And the water molecules begin to gather together and the cloud forms and the rain falls all because God sent it. It's not that God's enemies just somehow luck out and have to be, happen to be in the right time at the right place to get the rain. God sent them the rain. He says this, rain, go pour down on Kim Jong-un, the murderous leader of North Korea, as he sends his death squads out to kill Christians. God sends rain to his rebellious enemies. That's the kind of love our Father has, even for rebellious sinners, even for those who never bow the knee to him. Again, this is God's common grace, but let us, let us see the generous, indulgent nature of God's common grace. What is rain and sun needed for? Especially in an agricultural society like the one in which Jesus lived, rain and sun are needed for food and water. Friends, We, if we are sons of God, are called and supernaturally empowered to imitate this love. We cannot send rain or sun. No, but we are called to a generous love. We can give food and water. We can't make rain come and sunshine, but guess what? We can meet practical needs. We can give food and we can give water. Matter of fact, we are commanded to give such things to our enemies. Remember last week, the whole point I was driving to last week was that generosity kills a vengeful spirit, right? Do y'all remember that? Please tell me you do. All right, so last week, generosity kills that vengeful spirit. So we are commanded to be generous, Romans 12, 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's how you send him son. That's how you imitate your father. Feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's how you send rain. That's how you imitate your father. You give him something to drink. This is what we're called to do. This is how we imitate our father. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Food and water. When we do this, we look like our dad. This is simply basic, practical need meeting. As we actively look for ways to meet the needs of our enemies. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Are we actively looking for ways to meet the needs of our enemies? 
I mean, how about giving out water to the hecklers? I mean, think about it. How about, how about that coworker that, that hates you for your faith? How about bringing him so, uh, some lunch from his favorite place? Now, this is just practical, easy, need me not to put on a show because you want to look like your father. I can't send you rain. I can't send you, I can't send you sunshine. But here, I can do this. Let me meet this basic, simple need in your life right now, even as you spit in my face and yell at me. And we don't limit it to food and water. How can we practically meet the needs of those who hate, hurt, and harm us? And I don't have answers for you. We need to sit down and think. Think. How can I do this? How can I meet the needs of those who are my enemies? Practical need meeting is what this passage earlier in Exodus 23 we we read about. where, Where God commands his people to help your enemy when you see his animal straying. When you see his donkey struggling with the load. That's practical need meeting. That's exactly what God tells his people to do in Exodus 23. Practical, everyday need meeting. But don't make it a project. Don't fake it. It has to be real. And if we are sons, then we've been divinely empowered to love like this, to show an indulgent love. But let me move us to our third point. We look like our father when we show intercessory love to those who harm us. Let's jump back to verse 44, if you will. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray, intercede. Now, showing a general indiscriminate love and being generous and meeting some needs, that's one thing. But pray for them? Look at how Jesus, just as he does throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, he keeps drilling deeper, doesn't he? He drills to the recesses of our heart. You can fake those other two things. But prayer, in the secret, only God sees that. God sees your heart. You can't fake this last one. Pray for those who persecute you. And notice that Jesus ups the ante. He's moved from just an enemy to a persecutor. Pray for those who persecute you. We look like our Father when we do this. For when we pray for our enemies, we look like our elder brother Jesus. Who, when his enemy's metal spikes were ripping through his flesh, pinning him to a wooden cross, prayed this in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or Stephen. Stephen imaged his father and and imitated his elder brother as enemies' rocks cracked his bones. And he prayed and Verse 60 of Acts chapter 7. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If the cruel torture that they endured, our Lord and our brother Stephen, if the cruel torture they endured didn't silence their prayers, then what pain, what pride, or what prejudice is silencing ours? What is it? And think of Paul. Paul, too, imaged his father and imitated his elder brother as he prayed for his fellow Jews who who oftentimes mistreated him, treating him like an enemy, persecuting him, even plotting to kill him. He says this in Romans 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That they may be saved. Do we pray this for those who persecute us? Those who hate us? 
maybe in a more indirect way, do you pray for the salvation of some of the new atheists that are out there today? Do you pray for their salvation? We should. Do you pray for the salvation of that relative who mocks your faith to be saved? Do you pray for them to be saved? We should. I'm afraid personally, I'm just speaking about me now. I'm afraid I spend more time complaining about the various persons who are influencing our society to go against God than I do praying for them. I do much more complaining about my enemies than praying for my enemies. We need to read, well, like, let's, let's say when we read an article about the latest affront on the biblical definition of marriage, just to give an example, do we stop and pray for those persons? Do you pray for this couple in Snellville that has brought this lawsuit to, to get rid of Georgia's amendment on marriage? When you hear that story, do you, do you just get on your knees and pray for their salvation? Or do you get frustrated and say, oh, and get indignant? Do you pray for Kermit Gosnell to be saved? We should. We should. Friends, as our culture continues its downhill journey toward every man doing what is right in his own eyes, we will only see the opposition to God's truth and to us increase. And thus this text will become more and more paramount. We desperately need God's divine enabling love in us so that we can love our enemies. Supernatural love, which means that we have to be sons in order for this to happen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned and executed by the Nazis, once said, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Think about that image. Bonhoeffer praying for his Nazi, for the captors, for those who were holding him and, and ultimately would kill him. We go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. And I think that our love will grow as we pray. John Stott said this, It is impossible to truly pray for someone without loving him, and it's impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. Do we have this type of love? intercessory love, indiscriminate love, indulgent love, and intercessory love. Friends, your last point on your notes is simply this. How we love will show what family we belong to. How we love will show what family we belong to. Let's finish the text, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, who are you going to look like here? A love that is simply reciprocal and aimed at those whom we like or who are like us is nothing more than natural love. But we, the sons of God, are called to a supernatural love. Who do we look like? Where is the family resemblance? Does our love make us look like our Father in heaven? Or does the way we love make us just look like the rest of the world? That's the pressing question that Jesus has for us this morning. Our love that we have towards our enemies and towards those who hate God, who does that make us look like? 
Do not even tax collectors do the same? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus isn't belittling these groups here. He's simply saying this. When you hate your enemy, you're no better than the very ones you hate. So let me put it a different way. When you hate Kermit Gosnell, you're no better than Kermit Gosnell. When you hate your enemies, you simply act like your enemy. And there's nothing special about that. Nothing. That's just the kind of love the rest of the world has. What Christ calls for is a supernatural love that should pour out of the hearts of sons of the kingdom. Can we love as Christ calls us to? Can we love those who hate us, who hate our God, who hate this book right here that we're reading out of this morning? Can we love the atheist, the terrorist, the abortionist? Can we love the illegal alien, the secularist, the political foe? Can we love the mean sister-in-law, the insulting parent, the mocking neighbor? Who's on your enemy list? I don't know. But love them by the power of Christ that is in you. Love them with indiscriminate, indulgent, and intercessory love. I was reminded of a story of, you know the story. Most of you in here know the story of Corey Ten Boom. And, of course, she was captured by the Nazis when she lived in Holland and um, was imprisoned in one of the horrible concentration camps, and was abused horribly, humiliated. Um, many uh, of those around her, including her sister, I believe, died as a result of the treatment she received from these Nazi soldiers. She tells this story. She says, and this was years later, she, she eventually was released after the war and everything, and she tells this story. She said, I was at a church service in Munich, and then I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men. The heaps of clothes. Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he, our Savior, has washed my sins away. And he, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people um, for the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled up in me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to str- smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the, world, that the world's healing hinges on, but his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. He gives, along with the command, the love itself. So don't go from this room today and say, okay, how can I muster up this love? First thing you do is fall on your face in repentance and prayer. God, 
Give me this love. Give me this love. Now I want you to notice two things as I conclude here. And we are concluding real quickly. Notice two things in this last section. First, notice how simple and practical Jesus is. You you may be thinking in your mind, okay, how do I start loving my enemy? Well, first of all, you start with prayer like I just said. But look at verse 47. It says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So, So what's the opposite? The opposite is that we are to greet our enemies. I mean, greeting, really, Jesus? You're talking about saying hello? And that's, that's, that's how you're telling us to love our enemies? I love it. I love the fact that Jesus calls us to practical, simple kindness. So the next time you're in the office place and there's that guy who has mocked you and mocked you for your faith, and what you want to do is just avoid him, get to your desk, do your work, and get home without ever running into him again, you instead walk up to him and say, hey, how you doing today? How was your weekend? That's the first step right there. I mean, it's that simple. It's that practical. And notice one other little thing here at the end that might help motivate us toward the type of love that we should have. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, what empowers one to meet the needs of others and intercede on behalf of one's enemy? Is there really any worldly acclaim that that kind of person is going to receive? I mean, do they give out awards for that? And the award for loving one's enemy goes to, no, no, that doesn't happen. They don't do that. The world will not applaud men like that. So we live for the reward that we will one day receive when we are with our Father in heaven, hearing those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Divine love pushes us to take our eyes off of the natural realm and focus our eyes on heaven. Focus our eyes on what is to come. So Christian, we look to our elder brother Jesus. We must be like him for he too looked to the reward. Hebrews 12, 2. We are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, Christian, begin to make your efforts this week to love your enemies. Pray for God to stir up that supernatural love in you. And begin to pray for those who persecute you. And take simple, practical, down-to-earth steps to make that happen. Unbeliever, I want you to hear me this morning. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if if what happened in Chris's heart has never happened in your heart, I want you to hear me this morning. You cannot obey Jesus' words until your heart is changed. You are an enemy of God. Did you just take a breath? Guess what? That was a gift sent to you. Are you planning to go home and eat? Guess what? That's food given to you. He has done these things to leave you without an excuse. You cannot leave here today and say, oh, well, I didn't know enough about God to be saved or to, 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 to go to heaven or anything like that. You leave here without an excuse, friend. Matter of fact, you came in here without an excuse. He's been feeding you every day, leaving you without an excuse. Oh, friend, he is a God who loves his enemies. So I want you to hear this. Because everybody in here was at one time an enemy of God, including Chris. Until last 2012, whatever the dates was he gave you, he was an enemy of God. Until God rescued him out of the enemy camp and brought him into the kingdom of light. So I want you to hear these words, Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So unbeliever, my last words of this sermon is simply this. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know and I can believe I can speak for every believer here in this room that we are overwhelmed by your love for us. How deep the Father's love for us is what we sang earlier. How amazing this grace is that you've poured out upon us. Because we know who we were. We were enemies. We were eating food that wasn't ours and never thought twice about it. We were breathing breath that we didn't generate and it never even crossed our mind. But simply by your grace and mercy, not because we started doing something good and figured it out, but simply because of your grace, you took our stony, rebellious, sinful hearts and made them new and made us sons. And so now we've experienced the lavish love of the fathers. So Father, thank you so much for what you've done for us. And now we can't help but go out and be different. So God, I pray that you'd move in us. If we've become satisfied with the way we've been living our life and and just going about this cultural Christianity, Father, break our hearts that we are not being the people you want us to be. Show us right now, even in our own minds right now, as we go about our work this week, show us how it is that you want us to love our enemies. How are we supposed to love those who hate the gospel? How are we supposed to love those who who continue to push a a morality that goes totally against your word? How are we going to do that? We can't muster it up in our strength. So, Father, we pray that you would do a work in us so that we might look like you. We want people to see the family resemblance, Father. We want people to see the family resemblance. So we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.